Welcome to the Forensic Psychologist Podcast, a place where we discuss the niche practice of forensic psychology. The show episodes will take you on a trek through the intersection of law and human behavior and even some true crime. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Vienna, forensic psychologist and clinical director at Vienna Psychological Group. And although I am a licensed psychologist, please note that this podcast and information presented on this podcast is for education and informational purposes only and may not be construed as medical, psychiatric, or legal advice. The information on the podcast episodes are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition, nor is it intended to replace any medical or legal advice offered by your physician, treating doctor, or lawyer. All right, today's episode is an interview with Dr. Rossi. Let me tell you a little bit about her before we jump into the episode. Dr. Rossi is a forensic psychologist with the California Department of State Hospitals, where she conducts evaluations relating to competency to stand trial, restoration of sanity, and mentally disordered offender laws. She has previously conducted various psychological evaluations involving risk assessment, sexual offending, child custody, malingering, and diagnostic clarification. Dr. Rossi has completed over 500 evaluations on individuals ranging from mild adjustment disorders to severe psychopathology and testified over 50 times in courts across California. She currently rounds out her professional role through teaching a course on forensic psychology for both California Polytech University and Colorado State University. Dr. Rossi completed her PhD in counseling psychology with specialized training in forensic psychology from Colorado State University in 2014 and became licensed in the state of California in 2015. Here's my interview with Dr. Rossi. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Forensic Psychologist Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Vienna. And today I have with me Dr. Rossi, and she's going to be talking to us all about different kinds of forensic, well, her background in forensic work, her experience, particularly in the state forensic hospitals, which I know most of you guys have sent me emails in the past two weeks. So here are your answers to those questions. I did incorporate them in our interview. And she's going to be talking to us about competency evaluations. So I want to welcome Dr. Rossi to the show. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. I know we're all busy, so very much appreciated. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And I really appreciate all the work you're doing to shed some light on the field and what we do. Yes, of course. I This is one of my favorite things that I do in practice every day now. I mean, it's not part of like my practice practice per se, but it's it's like a passion project of my practice. So it's quite Yeah, fun. I can definitely understand how it's rewarding. Yeah. So why don't you tell the listeners why you got into forensic work? Because I, I do, and this question really comes from students emailing about, they always ask, how do I make a choice in my, my career? How do I, I want to get into psychology, but I don't know what kind of psychology. So can you share with them why you got into forensic work particularly? Yeah. So I think like most people, I had a basic interest in understanding people and the reasons why people can be so different or behave in different ways. That interest naturally led me to psychology. So when I was in undergrad, I double majored in psychology and criminology. And I think that's when I first realized that my main interests were around abnormal psychology crime and why people engage in problematic behavior. At the time I was in undergrad, forensic psychology was still a relatively new field. So 
I didn't really have any idea where I was going with it. I tried out a couple of different things. I tried out an industrial organizational master's degree. It was not a great fit for my interest or really what I saw myself doing. I thought about law school, took the LSAT, applied and worked as a paralegal before realizing that again really wasn't hitting on the psychology piece. So I knew that I needed a doctorate in clinical or counseling psychology. So I headed down that path and luckily just had great supervisors when I was in graduate school and really sought out opportunities in this field that helped show me and figure out exactly where in the field I wanted to be. And that ultimately forensic psychology was the specialty I wanted to pursue. Okay. So you have a very similar road to becoming a forensic psychologist as some of our other guests, including myself, meaning that many of us have dabbled in the idea of wanting to go to law school, but still wanting to understand more of the human behavior side and deviancy and crime. So we we went the other way and did the forensic psychology, but I hear that from quite a few people. (laughs) Yeah. So it's very common. Very common. Yeah. And so you have some experience and maybe you currently work at the forensic state hospital or you used to, is it current? I can't remember. Yes. I am currently a forensic evaluator at Atascadero State Hospital. Wonderful. Can you share with us your experience being a forensic evaluator working at one of like the biggest forensic state hospitals here in California? Yeah, I would say I would start with saying just a little bit about the hospital. So Atascadero State Hospital or ASH is one of five state hospitals in California. It's a maximum security inpatient facility with an all-male patient population. So we have four primary reasons that someone would be at the hospital. So either they were deemed incompetent to stand trial, they were adjudicated as being found not guilty by reason of insanity, they're currently serving a prison term and they require more intensive psychiatric care than they can receive in the prison mental health system, or they finished their prison term and were found to meet certain criteria that indicated they weren't ready to go to the community. So this population is known as offenders with a mental health disorder or OMBs. Okay. So as a forensic evaluator, my primary role is to review the cases that are related to why the patient is at the hospital, interview the patient, and then write a report that goes to the court addressing one of those issues. So my primary work at the hospital has been whether they are now competent to stand trial or whether they still continue to meet the criteria as to be an offender with a mental health disorder. And then I often go to court and testify on those reports in these cases. And this sounds like a really cool job. I love it. Do you love it? I just absolutely love it. I love it. Yeah. Absolutely love it. I can't, I consistently feel that I'm incredibly lucky that I've found myself in this role because it really combines all of my interests of severe mental illness, Mm -hmm. psychological assessment, and the legal system. Right. And so can you give us an example of like what your day looks like, like a caseload wise? I mean, I know you're not carrying caseload per se, but maybe how many evaluations you're expected to do? And like, what do they range from? You mentioned not guilty by reason of insanity. Are you doing those, those evaluations to return them back to court or no, that's competency. I'm sorry. I'm mixing this up. You have not guilty by reason of insanity offenders there. So what's the goal with them and whether they're kind of like, just like a breakdown of the evaluations that you do and 
a look into your day, I guess. So for the patients that are found not guilty by reason of insanity, they're serving their commitment at the hospital. So the primary role of a forensic evaluator for those patients is really regular yearly updates about how they're doing. And then eventually, you know, assessing when you feel that they're ready to maybe go to a step-down facility and eventually leave the hospital. That's not my primary caseload at the hospital. Mine is primarily writing evaluations for offenders with a mental health disorder. Mm-hmm. So my week typically consists of having a couple days in which I have hearings with the Board of Parole or I have to testify in court in the afternoon. So I finagle my schedule around that and usually schedule a couple interviews throughout the week. I'll review a particular case, how a patient's doing in the hospital. I'll consult with their treatment team within the hospital. And then I'll go interview them. Sometimes I stack those interviews up, you know, a couple at a time when I go inside security, just based on my schedule. Mm-hmm. And then I spend a lot of time writing those reports and getting them sent off to court. Okay. And let me ask you this. So you're an evaluator. You mentioned that a couple times. What would be the difference between being a forensic evaluator like what you do versus maybe someone that works in a prison setting? a psychologist that works in the prison setting? Yeah, that's a great question. There is a pretty significant difference between working in a forensic setting and being a forensic evaluator. In order to be a forensic evaluator or a forensic psychologist, it requires specialized knowledge and training that goes above and beyond a general psychology degree. However, you can work in a prison or even as a psychologist on a treatment unit at the state hospital with a basic degree, doctorate degree in clinical or counseling psychology without specialized knowledge in how to write forensic evaluations. So I think that that's a a pretty significant difference between just working in the setting and then actually being an evaluator who writes reports that goes to court or testifies to an expert opinion in court. Right. And that's really helpful. And I always like to point that out in our shows because... I often hear people saying like, oh, I work in a prison. I'm a forensic psychologist, but that actually doesn't match the specialty guidelines definition or loose definition, right? Of a forensic psychologist. Exactly. And you're seeing more and more of a push within the state hospital system and within the prison system to have better definitions of what it means to be a forensic psychologist or what training and experience you need to carry that label. Right, because it's not a protected term by the EPA or the American Academy of Forensic Psychology. Well, not yet, at least. Not yet. Some states do have a better mechanism for actually making sure you have specified training Mm -hmm. to call yourself a forensic evaluator, um, such as the state of Massachusetts. However, in California, we don't have that. So some sort of certification or, like you said, definition of what it means to call yourself a forensic evaluator is definitely needed. Right. And I always refer people again back to those guidelines because it explicitly says in there that just because you work in a forensic oriented setting, like in a prison or you work in a police department does not make you a forensic psychologist. We have to be really careful with that because it misguides the public and, you know, students coming in and people working in the field. So anyways, I appreciate you helping me flesh that out a little bit. 
Yeah. yeah, and I think one important thing about it too is that it can be extremely detrimental to the population that you're working with. Some of the evaluations that are done in the field of forensic psychology carry significant weight. Absolutely. So if you don't truly understand the psycholegal question, you could actually do a lot of damage on the part of the inmate or patient or defendant. Right. So don't just take these evaluations because someone asks you to do them. You got to get proper training, guidance, consultation, supervision, all the things. Exactly. It's just like any other area of psychology. I wouldn't take on a neuropsych evaluation. That's definitely not my area of expertise. So I think it's always important to operate in our bounds of competence. Well, speaking of competence, I'm going to take us into one of your areas of expertise, competency evaluations. Big topic of the day. What is a competency evaluation? So in general, competency evaluations are just assessments of whether someone has the capacity to make rational decisions. So it can be related to their medical care, their financial situation, a civil case or a criminal case. But the most common competency evaluation and the one I have the most experience with is whether somebody is competent to stand trial. And these evaluations really just look at whether a defendant has a mental illness or a mental defect and whether that impairs their ability to understand basic legal procedure, understand what they're being accused of, or impairs their ability to work with their attorney or participate in their own defense. Right. And so that is, and here in California, we follow the the Dusky standard. So the two, well, I've seen it written both ways, two or three prongs, however you decide to decipher that out. Correct. Yeah. And so what kinds of folks get referred for competency evaluations? The most common reason for competency is usually severe mental illness, such as schizophrenia or a severe bipolar one disorder diagnosis. Um, you also frequently see individuals that have neurocognitive disorders or intellectual disabilities and are really struggling, either cooperating with their attorney or really understanding what's going on during their court proceedings. So they uh, usually a doubt is declared and and they are now started on this process of having their competency assessed. Right. And so let's talk about that process. Let's kind of break it down for people a little bit. In a competency evaluation, anyone can declare a doubt on the defendant. Is that correct? Yes. Anybody in the courtroom. Anybody. Right. That would be helpful to clarify. Anyone in the courtroom can declare a doubt. The attorney representing the defendant, the other attorney, the prosecution, the judge. Can family members, can they suggest that? I'm, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Maybe do they say, give their take on what the person's going through and maybe struggles they see and maybe give that to the attorney and then maybe the attorney declares a doubt. If they yeah. The mechanism would be the attorney. Yeah. Okay. So once the doubt is declared, then what happens? Depending on the county, they order one or more evaluations. Some counties just have one evaluation. Others will have a standard two evaluations or three evaluations. And so then either a forensic psychologist or psychiatrist, most of the time they're in county jail at the time, go in and assess the defendant to determine whether they are competent to stand trial or not. And then based on that, they submit those reports to the court. And then the court makes a determination of whether that defendant is competent to stand trial or not. If they are determined to be competent to stand trial, then their court proceedings continue to move forward. If the judge agrees that 
they are incompetent to stand trial, then all of the court proceedings are suspended and they are either sent to a state hospital in California for competency restoration or they participate in a competency restoration program within the county jail. Those are becoming more common over the last couple of years to address the sheer number of people that are in jails and have been deemed incompetent to stand trial. Yeah, on a rare occasion. Yeah. So on a rare occasion, competency restoration may be done on an outpatient basis. Mm -hmm. But I would not say that's very common, especially here in California. I just got a couple referrals actually for an outpatient competency restoration program. They're here locally and I didn't even know they exist, but I guess they're fairly new in the past. um, Yeah, they are fairly new. Part of the problem is that there are just so many defendants that are currently sitting in county jail waiting to be restored to competency or at least, you know, have an effort at restoring them. And it's really unfortunate because some of those defendants may have relatively minor charges and they're spending more time waiting to participate in competency restoration treatment than they should. Right. And so when they're going through competency restoration, I mean, their case is put on hold. And that's why it's so important that we get them evaluated, treated and back to court. And so we have all these other kind of programs popping up, I guess, to help me. Exactly. Yeah. Because everything. Yeah. I mean, if it's a misdemeanor charge, right. And they're going through competency restoration for what, like sometimes it's up, you know, six months, eight months. I mean, it kind of depends, I guess. Right. I've had someone go to state hospital and come back in about eight weeks, eight, 12 weeks. I think it was like the average time. And then some others spend six, 12 months there. And it's like, well, they could have served their time in county jail and already been out. Yeah, those are all the the very relevant issues that are consistently having to be juggled when dealing with this population. It's really difficult to get them into the state hospital system because sometimes it's just a matter of getting them medic- properly medicated. Right. Many county jails don't have the resources to forcibly medicate somebody if they're refusing their medications. So just some defendants may not be taking any medications at all and in a really poor psychiatric state. So it's really unfortunate that, you know, sometimes it takes so long to even start that process. Yeah. And I just want to touch on um, forcibly medicating someone. So what we mean by that is there is an order from the judge saying this person needs to be medicated. And I forgot the, is it a Reese hearing? Am I getting that one right? Yeah, a Reese hearing I believe so. To, go to, to say that this defendant must take medication. And when we say, again, forcibly, it's not that they're necessarily pinning them down on a bed and, you know, jabbing them, right? It's just, it's done differently in the state hospital. Can you kind of tell me from your experience how that's done when they, quote, forcibly medicate? What does that mean? Because it looks a lot different than it sounds, or it, it sounds a lot worse than, than it really is. In some cases, yes, it does. Some patients have just the county automatically gives an involuntary medication order, which basically just says, if this person refuses their medications, and obviously the medications are needed to control their psychiatric stability or restore them to competency, then the state hospital has the authority to involuntarily medicate them. Usually that every effort is made to medicate patients. Every effort is made to have patients understand the importance of taking their medications 
and how that will contribute to their psychiatric stability and hopefully restoration to competency so they can get back to court and get on with their cases. There are occasions in which maybe a patient is dangerous to themselves or to somebody else due to their psychiatric instability. Mm -hmm. And if they are refusing medications and are considered a danger, then it does provide a mechanism for them to actually be forced to take their medications while they're at the state hospital. Okay. And before we jump into the actual evaluation itself, because we're going to get there, can we talk a little bit about the differences between juvenile and adult competency evaluations? Because they are much, much different. Yeah. So juveniles can be found in competency stand trial just like adults. And unfortunately, there's really no statutory distinction between competency and adults and juveniles. But luckily, many courts have started to recognize that they're very different and should be treated differently. So the primary way that states assess juveniles differently is that they add that a juvenile can be found incompetent due to developmental maturity. What does that so mean? Devel- developmental. That's a great maturity. question. <laughs> let's let's take that up. Let's break that up. Yeah. So there's actually not sort of like a standard go-to definition of developmental maturity, which again makes it hard to assess juveniles because Mm -hmm. how do you conceptualize that? How do you accurately assess that? One of the best ways is really sort of breaking down the legal standard when you're speaking with a juvenile and really trying to understand their decision-making process. The idea of developmental maturity came out of research that suggested A substantial percentage of juveniles, especially for those under the age of 15, lacked competency due to the fact that they're less likely to communicate with their lawyers, they're less knowledgeable about the legal system, and they're more inclined to make decisions based on short-term interests or their emotions or make decisions that basically aligned with what they thought other authority figures wanted, such as their parents. So those are the types of things that you would target and really look at, you know, if it's more of developmental maturity, it's more of their poor reasoning skills, their inability to rationally weigh the pros and cons of something that isn't better explained by maybe having a mental illness or having an intellectual disability. Right. Which is the standard for adults to be be found incompetent. So an example of like, let's say poor reasoning skills with a kid would be something like, I'm just going to take the deal. I'm just going to admit to it because I want to get out of juvenile hall. Would that be an example of poor reasoning skills? Yeah. I actually had the opposite of that with one of the juveniles I assessed. Oh, really? The juvenile was facing a relatively minor charge. It was just for running away, which was a violation of the probation that they were on. And they adamantly refused to speak with their attorney. They refused to speak to the judge. They refused to participate in any part of the process, yet they wanted to get released from the detention center. And so you could really see this lack of reasoning. Um, And I asked the juvenile multiple times, I said, well, how does refusing to speak with your attorney ultimately help you figure out what to do in this case? And I just got a bunch of, I don't know. And you could really see that's where sort of that developmental immaturity comes of, really this inability to sort of like reason their way through this scenario and act in their best interest. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't due to, you know, 
any cognitive deficits that were that I noticed throughout the evaluation. It wasn't due to not being in touch with reality or a, a mental illness that would have impaired him in some way. So I think it really boiled down to this. Sometimes adolescents make very emotionally based decisions or illogical decisions, which speaks to their developmental immaturity. Right. I mean, the front part of their brain is not fully grown in yet. Totally makes yeah. sense. So I, I think in our court here in Los Angeles, I I'm not on the juvenile competency panel. We have a total separate panel for that. I'm on the juvenile delinquency panel. I occasionally will do juvenile competency if they if the panel members are too busy or you know, I don't know, I have room on my schedule. I want to say that when I got on the panel here, almost I was hearing from colleagues that that were on the other panel, the competency panel, that almost every kid that was under the age of 15, 15 and under, were getting referred for a competency evaluation. And it was just overwhelming the panel. And this was like a couple of years ago. I don't know where they're at now because I don't do too many of those evaluations anymore. But is that common to refer any kid that's 15 and under just because of where their brain development is and what they, how maybe how they might respond in court? I mean, is it typical for courts and attorneys to refer their clients for these kind of evaluations, even, I don't know, even if there's not a big red flag or anything, they just want to see and make sure. Is that, is that a common thing? Yeah, I think that it's coming from just knowing that if they're that young, they probably really don't have a great understanding of the legal system. So it's better to make sure that they're competent than to let somebody go through the system and it impacts, obviously, their life and then possibly not be competent. So that's sort of like my best guess as to, to why they would take that approach as a more cautious approach than anything. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's what I was probably assuming back then. It just, it, I didn't know too, too much about competency until I went through some training later, but I'm guessing that's what it was too. Better to be safe than sorry. Absolutely. That's really what it's all about. Um, The standard is just making sure that defendants know what's going on in their case and can adequately participate in the process. Because if they can't, then really justice is not being done on anyone's part. Right. And so let me move into, we talked a little bit about juvenile versus adult competency, like the difference and touched on the juvenile ones. I think I may even just have a full episode on that because it's it's so important on its own. But I want to get into more of the approach, like your approach specifically to competency evaluations. Like what do they look like? What kind of questions are you answering? Is there any relevant case law that we should know about when doing these kind of evaluations? That would kind of set up your evaluation, right? Like how do you know what to ask? What are you basing it on? Yeah, I'll start with sort of like the relevant statute and case law. So our modern understanding of competency is defined by the 1960 case, Dusky v. United States. In this case, Milton Dusky, along with two juvenile co-defendants, abducted a teenage girl. He was charged with unlawfully transporting a female across state lines and attempted rape. Prior to his trial, he was evaluated. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and one of the psychiatric reports stated that he wasn't able to properly assist his attorney due to paranoia and beliefs that he was being framed. Despite this, he was still convicted and sentenced to 45 years. As you can imagine, the case was eventually appealed up to the Supreme Court. They overturned the conviction. And as a result, we have the dusty standard. 
And basically the Dusky standard said that the test for competency should be whether a defendant has a sufficient present ability to consult with one's attorney with a reasonable degree of understanding and a rational as well as factual understanding of the legal proceedings against them. It really sets forth five main components that are important and that most states have modeled all of their competency standards after. The first is that it's delineated two prongs, understanding and functioning. So with understanding, it's really measuring the defendant's capacity to understand the criminal process, such as what a plea bargain is or what is the role of a judge. The second prong measures whether the defendant's ability to function in that process, which includes consulting with their lawyer as well as assisting in their defense. The second main component of the DEFCI standard is that it focuses on present ability, which is fundamentally different than assessing criminal responsibility. Since criminal responsibility is retrospective and looking at somebody's mental status at the time of the crime, competency to stand trial is all about the present moment. Are they currently capable of demonstrating this understanding and cooperating with their attorney. Which is why there's probably so many competency evaluations on one person sometimes because they could be found incompetent to stand trial one day, then found competent like a couple weeks later and then found incompetent again. It's so, yeah, the mental state can change so quickly, especially with those with severe mental illness and the medications issues. Right. The third component emphasizes ability as opposed to willingness. So that's a really important distinction that you can't be found incompetent to stand trial just because you're unwilling to participate in the process or you're unwilling to speak with your attorney. It's all based on capacity. If you are capable of doing so, then you are presumed to be competent to stand trial. Can you give us an example of what that would look like? Someone that has the capacity but isn't willing. So sometimes these are really difficult to assess pre-trial. So sometimes you won't really know if you're pre-trial, you're meeting with somebody for the first time, and they're just refusing to speak with anybody. They're refusing to speak with their attorney. Maybe they're refusing to speak with the evaluator. So you really have no data to go on. You might not know if the reason they're refusing to speak is due to paranoia or maybe delusional beliefs about their attorney or about the evaluator or if it's just due to a complete unwillingness to participate in the process. So sometimes these individuals will be deemed incompetent as a you know, cautionary measure. And when they're sent to the state hospital, it's much easier for us to assess them because we see them on a 24-hour basis. And so we're able to see if they're able to communicate. Are they able to to make requests to staff to get basic needs met? You know, Are there any abnormalities in their speech or their thought process? In their overall functioning, we're able to observe if there are any overt signs or symptoms of maybe schizophrenia or mania or something that would impair their competency to stand trial. If not, if we're not seeing any of that evidence over a period of time, then it becomes much more apparent that when you sit down to talk to them about their case and they just refuse to speak with you about their case, yet can ask to go to a courtyard or can ask to go to a library that it's much more about a willingness to participate in the process as opposed to their ability to do so. And so I think when I was doing these evaluations, the ones that I found that were unwilling to participate, not due to a mental illness per se, 
or the lack of the capacity. It was, well, actually it was due to Milton. I mean, they had, it was more of my folks with personality disorders, maybe someone that was like antisocial personality or a, a borderline. They just adamantly refused because they didn't want to. I mean, they could, and you could see that when they went to the state hospital, we read notes from treatment team members that said, you know, they participated when they wanted to, but when they didn't want to, they just didn't. And then it's like, what do you do with a person like that? Do they get sent back to the jail and found competent sometimes, or do they remain in the hospital for more treatment? Yeah. For these individuals that when we realize at the state hospital that they're more unwilling to participate in the process, there is a mechanism for us to send them back. And as a forensic evaluator, we detail that in our report. We list out all the evidence of the reasons why we think that they're unwilling to participate in the process as opposed to incapable of doing so. Gotcha. I mean, it can be so challenging sometimes, I think, with these kind of cases. And obviously, like you mentioned, the resources at the state hospitals are just so much more plentiful than they are in the jail and more helpful because you guys do have eyes on them 24-7. We're in the jail. The clinicians there, I think, are just doing intakes and and check-ins and they're not there 24-7. I mean, the deputies are, but they're clearly not the ones doing the evaluation. So really one of the hardest questions to answer. And for somebody who's only meeting with somebody once a month or once a week, it's really hard to get enough evidence to be able to answer that question. Yeah. So what are your actual like reports look like for these competency evaluations? You know, how how may they be different than like a a mitigation evaluation where we're just kind of gathering background like psychosocial, mental health history, making a diagnostic opinion? So these reports actually look a lot different than my other forensic reports because as you noted, they don't need nearly as much background information. If I'm doing a report pre-trial, then I might include a little bit of background information or psychosocial history because that's sort of what the court expects. But in some ways, it really doesn't make sense to include a lot of background information because where someone was born or how many siblings they have or how many relationships they've had in their lifetime is largely irrelevant to answering the psycholegal question of whether they're competent to stand trial. Of course, some information becomes relevant such as when there are concerns about cognitive functioning. Mm-hmm. So you might want to know a little bit more about their history, such as did, do they have a head in, history of head injuries? What's their highest level of education? Um, those sorts of things. But unless it's absolutely relevant in a specific case, you don't need a lot of background information or psychosocial history. Right. So you're, you're keeping it in the present pretty brief reports, it sounds like. Yeah, these reports are much shorter than other types of forensic evaluations. In general, I have a relevant background section. So it's really in this particular case, what is that relevant psychosocial history? And then I have a diagnostic impression section, section where it just goes over the current charges and allegations. I make sure to mention why a doubt was declared. That's definitely important information for whoever sees the report down the line. Mm-hmm. I have a mental status section, and then the bulk of the report is really an in-depth analysis of their competency to stand trial. I break it apart, and the reason I do that is because a defendant could be incompetent across all areas, or it may just be one. So I want to make sure that I address each area of competency separately to help whoever's providing the competency restoration or whoever's evaluating them later to really understand what the main concerns are. 
Yeah, because if they are found incompetent to stand trial, let's say you find them incompetent, they will go back and do restoration treatment. And so it'd be very helpful for those folks, the treatment providers to know where they're struggling to help them get back on track and hopefully achieve restoration to go back and continue their, you know, their court case. Right. And as somebody who's provided that competency restoration at times in my career, one of the most frustrating things is, you know, to say that somebody's incompetent to delusional ideation or they're not rational. There's no description of what the delusions are and how it relates to their case or what they're being irrational about. And so it makes it really hard to figure out how to target your treatment and make sure they're restored to competency. Um, so those examples and really breaking down the areas of competency, I think, are so important to writing really good forensic evaluations. Yeah, and that's helpful to hear because I don't think I heard that in a training when I went through and learned how to do these. I might have heard it from a colleague, which also that's very helpful, too. <laughs> but I didn't. Th- th- these are such important nuggets, which, again, appreciate you sharing here today. So we talked a little bit about your reports now. And of course, as always, in forensic evaluations, any ethical considerations that people may run across in these kinds of evals? Yeah, I think one really important consideration for these evaluations is that the defendant hasn't been convicted yet. At this point, these are just charges. They're just allegations. So it's really important to be careful about the language you use in your report, as well as the information you include. As an evaluator, you don't want to include any information that can be used against them, such as writing the information that they tell you about guilt or innocence. Yes, it's not supposed to be used against them, but it's just one of those cautions to take as an evaluator. And you also want to make sure you're not talking about the defendant in a prejudicial manner. I often see this in reports in which, you know, maybe a defendant is saying that they're not guilty or they're denying the allegations against them. And the evaluator interprets that in a way they lack empathy or that it's reflective of a negative trait, or or that it's delusional. And that's really not our role to place judgment on those things. Our role is to be objective and make sure that we're just assessing whether they know this information and whether they can participate in the process. Right. Yeah, that's really helpful too. I mean, I have seen that myself in reports, the mention of a defendant being quote, delusional because they're saying they didn't do it when the police report said this, you know, but again, like yeah. said, not our role to decide whether or not the police reports are true or they did or didn't do what the police say they did or the, you know, the prosecutor is charging them with. Right. I mean, on one hand, they may be delusional if they're saying that, you know, an imposter that looks like them is the one that committed the crime and they're being framed by the CIA. That's definitely worth noting and discussing. But if somebody's telling you that they didn't do it and they have very reality-based logical explanations why, and there's nothing beyond that, then you have to account for maybe there is another explanation or, you know, sometimes people aren't guilty of all the things that they're accused of doing. So it's something that you have to be really aware of as an evaluator and make sure you're asking the right questions in the interview, but also being to the defendant and what their rights are. It is within their right to say that they're not guilty and, you know, to pursue a 
you know, not guilty plea, regardless of if anyone else thinks that that's a smart decision for them. Right. And do you have maybe some questions, some examples of questions that would not be good to ask in the interview? Like what should you definitely stay away from? What's not appropriate? Definitely not appropriate to ask if they did it or not or why they did something. Those are definitely inappropriate questions and don't get at really any relevant information. I also try to stay away from closed-ended questions. It's really difficult to actually assess if somebody knows information and truly understands information if you're asking them very closed-ended questions. And it also doesn't provide an opportunity for them to explain themselves to you. So one of the questions that I always ask is to try to get at somebody's rational understanding of their legal proceedings is to ask their version of what they're being accused of, what's their understanding of it, mm-hmm. or to ask what their intended legal strategy would be. Because, you know, if they provide this extremely irrational defense strategy that relies on calling witnesses in you know, situations and circumstances that are definitely not supported by any of the records I have, then that tells me that they're probably not in a rational state. Yeah. And that's, yeah, again, very good example. So if you guys are getting into these kind of evaluations, listen to this podcast episode again. And can you, I I know I didn't send this to you ahead of time or ask you, so I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit, but what are your go-to books in this area for competency evaluations? Any like favorites or... I don't know, resources that you you know of that we can point people to? I think that there are a couple, you know, main handbooks in the field of forensic psychology. I think one is psychological evaluations in the court. Okay. I know Ira Packer and anything that he's involved with is huge in the field of competency to stand trial evaluations. I know that, you know, there are different camps when it comes to actually assessing competency and whether you should use a standardized tool. Oh, I know. We didn't even get to any of that. I'll be on another episode. Yeah. So (laughs) I actually do not use a standardized tool for the main reason or the main reason being because you still have to adjust any interview you do to adequately assess a particular case. So there's not going to be one tool that accurately assesses somebody's understanding of their own legal situation. So for that reason, I sort of use a modified version of the revised competency assessment instrument. Okay. Because it's a semi-structured interview that really allows me to adjust it based on the particular defendant I'm working with and the reason they were found incompetent to stand trial. Right. And I'm familiar with that. So, I mean, I said on another episode, but thanks for answering that. And some other tools I think that are relevant here in this section while we're talking about it, the inventory of legal knowledge. That's a good one to use kind of like the Tom, but geared towards competency or going to court, knowledge of the court, the court material. Yeah, that's definitely a tool that if we're suspecting that somebody might be feigning incompetence, um, we often add the inventory of legal knowledge to a malingering battery. Mm -hmm. What would be the benefits of using a structured assessment? Like I haven't used this, but the MacArthur, right? There's that one. And I feel like there's another one that was specifically developed for defendants that had a lower IQ or that were intellectually disabled. That is the CAST MR. Okay, there you go, the CAST. In my experience, I do not ever use the CAST MR because it is often read aloud 
to the patient and it is a multiple choice. They have questions with multiple choice responses. And if you can imagine somebody who is maybe lower cognitive functioning, that can get really confusing. And so to me, I have not found it to be the best assessment, but that is what it's designed for, to assess individuals that are incompetent to stand trial that may have lower cognitive functioning. Mm -hmm. I think the main reason that people like to use those is it makes them feel more comfortable that they've fully assessed all the relevant criteria or feel more comfortable testifying to that opinion. Okay, makes sense. But I don't think that it's, it's an absolute. You can thoroughly assess competency to stand trial without having to use a standardized measure. You've just got to make sure that your, your interview is very thorough. Exactly. And I think that's why in juvenile cases, many of the attorneys prefer that we use the Jackie, the structured interview assessment tool for kids. So I think that's what it stands for is juvenile adjudication competency instrument. I could be wrong. Again, I haven't done these evaluations in quite some time. But are you familiar with the Jackie at all? I am. I would say that I don't use it rigidly because sometimes when you're in an interview, it gets really awkward and formulaic to follow like a specific series of questions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the way questions are phrased is confusing to the person you're asking them to. So sometimes you have to adjust on the fly or maybe somebody's already demonstrated knowledge in a particular area by talking about something in a, in a way that didn't come at the right time in the interview form. So sometimes it can be hard to use, especially with a juvenile. I agree. To try to follow something so structured and sometimes very wordy. Some of the, the items in that measure are like a paragraph long. And with some juveniles that I've read them to, they stop listening after about right. the first sentence. Absolutely. As same experience here. I used to get a lot of referrals for that and the attorneys very specifically wanted the Jackie. And I don't know if that's because they wanted to be able to use, you know, all that kind of information in court or it was maybe to help the restoration treatment process. I don't know. They always preferred that. And I'm like, this is such a, it's such a long process. And sometimes, like you said, it can be redundant. You know, if we already covered that information in another question and the kids tune out when I was giving those, I mean, it was, it was laborious. So. Yes, it is extensive and it's sometimes very redundant. Mm -hmm. And I think I I was, I think I was actually right. I looked it up. It's the juvenile adjudicative competence interview, the Jackie. Very awesome tool though. I mean, when you start out doing these evaluations, I mean, it can be very helpful because it gives you, you know, a structured set of questions and guides you through that process. So you don't miss any, you know, key questions, I guess, to ask the kid. Yes. If you're new to it, I would definitely recommend using it. I think as you become more familiar with it and as you do more assessment of competency, you really start to to find your groove and it becomes almost an automatic process of knowing what you need to ask and how to get there in an interview. And it becomes needing those tools less critical. Right. And I will link, of course, all these things that we've talked about. I will put links in our show notes here so people can find them and look it up. The Jackie in particular, if you guys get that, it comes with forms too, which I found very helpful when I was starting to do the competency evaluations for the juveniles. But it comes for forms, you know, just that have questions on them that you can ask the attorney and the parent. I think they have like a parent questionnaire back there as well. So again, a good starting place. I mean, I, and that's Thomas Grosso's instrument, I believe. 
I will link that. I have, uh, I think I have those links saved somewhere. But as we come to a close here with our interview, I always ask our guests to give a piece of advice to students or early career psychologists that are interested in going into this kind of work. So what would you say? What would you tell that students? Is, yeah. That's a great question. I actually get this question a lot from my students in the forensic psychology courses that I teach that are they're all at an undergraduate level. I think the first thing I would say is that there's not one singular path to working in this field or even being a forensic psychologist. I think there's just a tremendous amount of pressure on students to feel like they have to immediately go from undergrad to graduate school and identify this perfect graduate program that's going to immediately shoot them into the field of forensic psychology or they're never going to get there. And that has not been my own personal experience. Um, As I noted earlier, I kind of took, you know, a winding path. And many of the forensic psychologists I interact with regularly did not take a straight path or the same path and we're all in the same place. So I think that's the first thing I would say. In addition to that, I just highly recommend getting exposure to the field because it's really important to assess if it's going to be a good fit for you personally and professionally. Working in this field or even in a forensic setting can be really hard. It's you know, you're constantly inundated with dark aspects of society and human functioning. So volunteer with organizations or intern with organizations that are involved with mental health systems or criminal justice systems. It can be, you know, issues. It can, of course, be a county jail or a probation officer's department or a district attorney's office. But it could also be organizations that help people transition back to the community from being in jail or prison or organizations that help people that struggle with homelessness or substance abuse issues. Great organization that I volunteered with when I was in graduate school was CASA, or Court-Appointed Special Advocate. And I think that really figuring out um, and exposing yourself to this field will really help you figure out if it's something that you want to do and give you the experience to continue down the road. Yes, you nailed many of my points. You, You nailed them on the head. I repeat that every day. So much, much appreciated. Yeah, I think even for graduate students, I just reach out to people, reach out to professionals in your area and and see if they're willing to let you shadow them or even sit down and just interview them. And, you know, doors will open up for you. That's what I did when I was in graduate school. I just started calling people in the community and I luckily had found great supervisors who were just willing to take me under their wing and let me learn. Uh, The worst that can happen is they say no, but the best thing that can happen is you start to get experience in the field. And like I said, figure out if it's for you. That's right. Reach out to us, send us emails, call anything, LinkedIn. I mean, lots of, lots of ways to get in touch. So if you guys want to get in touch with Dr. Rosti, you can see her website's going to be listed in the show notes as well as contact email and once again thank you so much for being on the show and giving us some time this was fun maybe we can do it again sometime soon different topic maybe i would love to the forensic psychologist podcast is a project of vienna psychological group if you like this show please consider leaving us a review and five stars it helps get the word out to students and early career psychologists looking to get into the field of forensic psychology you can find all the resources mentioned in the show notes below and make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at Dr. Nicole Vienna. 
I'll be back in about two weeks with another awesome episode.